0: This episode of Upstream Perspective is brought to you by IHS Markets Upstream Insight. Our team of industry experts analyze the interplay of geopolitical structures, government priorities, corporate strategies, and global markets and technologies to deliver forward-looking solutions that lead to more informed and efficient decisions. These solutions are available via recurring reports, interactive analytics, robust data sets, and bespoke engagements with experts. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com/energy. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host for Upstream and Perspective, Jessica Nelson. Today we have Ford Tanner, an analyst covering oil and gas risk in Latin America, joining us to give insights on some of Latin America's hotspots. Ford, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Jessica.
0: So I wanna start by level setting with our listeners a little bit. Um, I know in the past, you said Latin America is likely to see pendulum swings given political changes in the region. And of course, a lot of those have been pretty high profile in the news lately. Um, But today's conversation is gonna focus on Brazil, Mexico, and Guyana, as those represent critical E&P hotspots at the moment. And I think, as you've mentioned, all three of those countries rank in the top half of IHS markets oil and gas risk ratings. Yes,
1: that's correct. You know, uh, I think Brazil and Guyana are in the top uh, probably 30 percent. Mexico is about halfway uh, in our rankings, and, and we rank countries on 21 different risk factors, uh, 131 countries in total. So. Um,
0: okay, so well, let's talk about those three countries, though. So Brazil and Mexico appear to be embarking on divergent paths regarding EMP policy and upstream investment opportunities. At the same time, uh, Guyana's game-changing deepwater discoveries are continuing against a backdrop of political risks in that region. Uh, So let's start with Brazil. Um, Brazil seems to be maintaining the previous administration's competitive ENP approach. In fact, right-wing nationalist government of Jair Bolsonaro has ambitious plans for bid rounds over the next couple of years. Well, what's your take on Brazil's bid round opportunities?
1: Right, so 2019 is going to be a huge year in terms of the bid rounds. There are three bid rounds this year uh, one non pre salt bid round and two pre salt bid rounds. Uh, the non pre salt bid round is round 16. That one has about 30 has 36 blocks, uh, I believe 13 blocks in the Campo space and 11 blocks in the Santos space. And our view is that um, those 24 blocks in the Campos and Santos spaces are going to be the most competitive because they abut the so-called pre-salt polygon. Uh, so, yeah, some of those blocks are believed to have pre-salt potential. Um, that's a tax royalty bid round, and the, the royalties are really on par with what we saw in the very successful round 15, um, in which almost half of the blocks were awarded. So, for, block, for round 16, we think you know, at least a third, uh, upward to half of the blocks will be awarded in that bid round. There's some other blocks in, the, in more frontier basins up, up the coast, the Camamu, Almada, Jacuipi, and Pernambuco-Paraiba basins. Um, those are in more frontier areas. Um, in terms of kind of the competitor mix, we'd expect independent uh, select majors to participate in that bid round. So it'll be competitive. But uh the, the pre-Salt bid rounds are, are going to be most competitive in our view. Um, you know, the, the sixth pre-Salt bid round uh has five blocks in the Campos and Santos stations. And then there's this uh surplus volumes transfer of rights bid round. And IHS Market uh has done analysis. We we've estimated surplus volumes of the transfer of rights at around 7.4 billion uh barrels of oil equivalent and recoverable. So uh, you know, massive resource there. And in fact, uh, you know, if, if all the blocks in the TOR, the transfer of rights bid round are awarded, the signature bonuses alone would amount to about $27 billion, uh, US dollars. So you know given the scale of of the pre-SALT areas, uh, both in terms of resource and capital commitment, uh, we would expect the uh, really the world's largest oil companies to to be the the primary participants there. So majors, large national oil companies, and of course uh, Petrobras, Brazil's national oil company. So a, a very competitive year in in 2019 in terms of the bid round opportunities in Brazil. And then thinking about um, kind of you know, beyond 2019, we we do anticipate continued bid rounds. Um, you know, in line with the schedule that the government has announced.
0: Sounds like some good opportunities. Um, what about some risks associated with at least this year's bid rounds?
1: Right. So um, in, in those frontier basins that I mentioned in round 16, uh, environmental licensing is probably the biggest risk. You know, um, Those basins don't have a whole lot of environmental data for them. And we've noted in you know, previous bid rounds the frontier areas that really can uh, get hamstrung by the environmental licensing process, so that's a risk for those basins in particular. Um, unitization is another regulatory risk that we, we've analyzed,
0: and uh, our
1: analysis has shown that, you know, harmonizing operatorship, shift, fiscal terms, local content requirements, all of that uh, can easily take a year when you, you know, do the negotiations between different companies and then bring in the government stakeholders uh, that have to be involved. Um, the bid rounds, all, all three of them uh, this year, have blocks that could be sus- susceptible or subject to unitization across multiple contract regimes, which could make it even more complicated. So, you know, you've got tax royalty blocks, abutting production sharing contract blocks, and near the, in and around the pre salt polygon you know, those could be susceptible to unitization, and it could be a lengthy process.
0: And you mentioned that you expect some majors to be investors. Um, I know in the past, some investors have raised concerns about how the government's anti-establishment approach to politics might trigger new political risks. Do you share that concern also?
1: Um, I mean, to some extent, yes. Um, I think one of the things we're watching, and it's been the case over the last, you know, months, uh, kind of a deteriorating relationship between the administration, the Bolsonaro government, and the oil workers' union. Um, <clears throat> over the last couple of years, we've seen the oil workers' unions, you know, try to put legal injunctions uh, in an effort to stop Petrobras's divestments and actually even hold up bid rounds. They haven't been very successful in doing that, um, kind of successful in delaying some of those divestments. Um, and I would expect that to continue under Bolsonaro. So, um, you know, that's a risk. And it is factored into our, our risk methodology that you referenced.
0: Um,
1: you know, we have a labor unrest score in it, and, and Brazil's labor unrest score really already reflects that. So we don't see major downgrades going forward. It's kind of already baked in.
0: And are there any other risks facing upstream investors under the Bolsonaro government?
1: Um, yeah, Yeah, the fact that Bolsonaro, as you referenced, is anti-establishment. I mean, we've done some analysis on kind of coalition dynamics. Um, It's a different different era, definitely, in Brazil politically. I think the the fact that he's had trouble sort of cobbling together a a working coalition could um, sort of undermine some of his efforts to advance a couple of other pieces of legislation. Um, to to uh, make Brazil's contract regimes more flexible, and even allowing uh, Petrobras to divest uh, up to seventy percent of its of its surplus volumes in the transfer of rights. So those are two kind of pieces of legislation that could be hung up um, at least temporarily, you know, not necessarily permanently, but certainly in the near term because of kind of the unwieldy coalition dynamics there.
0: And how about any specific opportunities where you expect to see any of these risks really play out? I mean, is it across the country, or are there only a specific plays or, or investment opportunities where you think this is most likely to uh, be seen as an impact?
1: Well, yeah, for the legislative front, I mean, the, the bill that I mentioned on the transfer of rights divestment—that's you know, obviously applicable exclusively to the transfer of rights. Um, it's uh, even if that is ultimately not passed. Um, you know, you could still see Petrobras divest some of that, um, you know, in, in future years. Um, it, it's a little bit politically um, sensitive, I, sh- I should say. Uh, Petrobras divesting, you know, large amounts of that area. But I think certainly a, kind of on a case-by-case basis, you could see Petrobras uh, move forward with, with divestments there.
0: All right. So let's uh, let's turn to Mexico. Um now, in Mexico, the government estimates that EMP contracts awarded through the upstream opening between 2015 and 2018 entail a total investment potential of USD $162 billion over a 20-year period. That's assuming all these projects are commercially successful. And foreign operators in Mexico have already made a lot of important offshore discoveries. Now, I know uh, the the election of leftist nationalist Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador as uh, Mexico's president has raised questions about um, whether the administration might offer new EMP investment opportunities, what do you expect in terms of, of upstream opportunities under uh, his government?
1: Right. So, Lopez Obrador has established a very ambitious um, crude oil production target for for PENEX, uh, targeting around 2.5 to 2.6 million barrels per day by 2024. Um, in order to get there. The government has provided some financial assistance to Pemex, but it's only about 13% of Pemex's 2019 budget. So you know, our view is that you know, that's not going to really move the needle uh, too much in terms of approaching that crude production target. Um, actually, on the 24th of April, uh, Pemex announced service contracts for mature fields, the process extending from now into June 2020 um you know that's kind of going back to pre-reform um, contractual models um some of those projects uh, could be of interest to foreign service sector companies uh, particularly like the shallow water areas and even some oil companies specializing in eor uh, could find those areas or those contracts attractive um but that's you know there again i, I don't think that's going to be a game changer um so what we're looking at is kind of when could we see a resumption of equity contracts. And our view is that new partnership opportunities with Pemex, uh, you know, in an equity sense could be as early, early as mid-2020. Um, the government's kind of given an indication on where they're going with a new licensing framework, uh, you know, retrenching, if you will, Pemex. At the center of ENP in Mexico. So that would mean, you know, more leeway for Pemex to select what it believes is the best partner in a given project. And, you know, simultaneously kind of diminishing the institutional influence of the ENP regulator, the CNH. Um, you know, so you know, a reconfiguration of kind of the institutional apparatus. PEMEX right now cannot directly conduct transactions. Uh, on an equity level with other companies, the CNH basically has to do that, um, and so the idea would be eliminating the CNH's authority over that, so that PEMEX could conduct those those JV transactions directly. Um, yeah, so in terms of kind of details about what those partnerships could look like, you know, I think we would see higher equity stakes for PEMEX and those JVs compared to the JVs. Over the 2015 to 2018 uh, timeframe, and um, you know, you could see local content requirements being more demanding. Um, so, and maybe tighter fiscal terms. All of that, you know, kind of part and parcel of the more nationalist uh, political leaning of this of this particular government. Yeah,
0: and just uh, want to uh, make a note for our listeners: JV's joint ventures, right? As you're talking about um, PEMEX and yeah. some of their their influence. Yeah. So uh, that, that obviously opens up some above-ground risks in Mexico. Uh, anything else that, in your view, um, foreign investors may need to be aware of uh, during this presidency?
1: Yeah. So um, a couple of interesting things happened recently. Um, on the regulatory front, we saw reduction in requirements and shorter timeframes for regulatory procedures you know, in terms of approval and modification of work programs. Um, so that's a positive thing, certainly for, for foreign investors there. In the near term, we'd expect um, those companies to be able to expedite their work programs as a result of these changes. Um, at the same time, uh, Lopez Obrador, kind of as part of the broader effort to sort of diminish the importance of the CNH, um, has enacted a 30% cut to that the regulators' budget for this year and has not prioritized. Uh, replacing technocratic personnel at that at the regulators. So, you know, on the one hand, you, it's like you have these countervailing forces of progress on one hand with the shorter time frames. At the same time, um, you've cut the, the regulators budget. He's supposed to approve all of these work programs. So. Um, you know, one one risk kind of over the longer term would be the impacts of the erosion of technocracy at the CNH. Um, You know, making it more susceptible to politicization, that's obviously a negative for companies. And then also, if the partnership framework moves forward along the lines that I stated, you know, without the CNH oversight, that could um, kind of make things less transparent. And and obviously, that that would not be a positive for investor confidence in Mexico's upstream sector. So a couple of risks there uh, on the regulatory side. All right.
0: Um, so let's uh, let's also now we'll turn to to Guyana, um, and I'll try to do a quick a recap for some of our listeners on what's transpired in Guyana. So in Guyana, ExxonMobil and its partners, Hess and CNOC have made 13 discoveries since 2015, constituting an estimated 5.5 billion BOE of recoverable resources. And you know, to this point, no sign of exploration success slowing down. Recently, a parliamentary no confidence vote and the Venezuelan Navy's retaliation against a seismic vessel contracted by ExxonMobil uh, in the Stabroke block have raised concerns about oil sector disruptions um, before Guyana's first oil production, which is anticipated for 2020. Um, did I miss any key background details uh, there, Ford? Uh,
1: no, that's an excellent summary, Jeff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: And, and secondly, then, um, talk to us about how these political risks uh, shape Guyana's upstream outlook.
1: Sure. So um, obviously, like you said, you set up the, the context very well. First oil production in Guyana anticipated for 2020. And then you have, you know, there's no confidence vote, snap election due later this year. The Venezuelan retaliation kind of throwing questions into all of this as to whether or not, you know, those plans could be derailed. Um Our view is that they won't be derailed. I'll explain why. Um, Politically, so, you know, in contrast to what we've seen in Mexico, where there's been a huge political pendulum swing, as you referenced, we don't anticipate that at all uh, for Guyana. You know, there are two political factions in Guyana. Both of them are very pro investment. Both of them recognize that the, you know, economic fortunes of the country hinge on a continued uh, favorable approach to ENT because they're not producing any oil yet so they still have to be nice to these to these companies um so you know our view there is that even if there is a change in government later this year following an election um you you you're going to have basically the same approach uh, as you've seen over the last years um so that's really important um, and that, that has implications for kind of future licensing, too. You know, the authorities are talking about their licensing, the kind of remaining areas that have not yet been licensed. Um, the energy minister the other day or in recent weeks has, you know, suggested that that could happen as early as 2020. I think that's a little ambitious given that, you know, they still have to finalize you know, various things, codify the local content policy, establish, you know, kind of uh, bid round parameters, modify the fiscal regime for future licensing in line with the guidance from the IMF, International Monetary Fund. So there's a lot that needs to be done before you would have a a new bid round. And if you throw this election into the mix, it could get delayed a little bit. But, you know, certainly over the next 18 months or so, I think that that – auction for unlicensed areas could could occur and then with respect to the Venezuelan issue that you mentioned um, one important point is that those kind of uh, incursions are in waters that are very far from where all the discoveries have been made okay so Mm -hmm. um, we don't envision Venezuelan naval vessels going that far eastward into Guyana to disrupt um these discoveries. And I think that's a really important point that, you know, even though many of these wa- much of these waters are disputed, um, you know, these the blocks or these uh, discoveries are actually in, in a relatively low risk area. Okay. Um so that's that's an important point there.
0: Yeah, and I think I read too um, you know, you start to get into some geopolitics here, right? And what's China's influence on Venezuela and, and what that looks like Um, in the longer term as well, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very important point because CNUC, um, China's national offshore oil company, um, is a minority partner in the ExxonMobil-Stabra Block consortium and so, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, Beijing represents an important check on Venezuela economically, and that could be to, absolutely to see no benefit um, in this in this particular instance.
0: Right. Uh, so, arguably, now these three countries, uh, as you've kind of walked us through, have you know they all have some some risks. How do they fall on um, on the risk rating um, mm-hmm. in, 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 for you and for IHS Market?
1: Sure. So. You know, thinking out five years, we have a five-year outlook. Uh, like I said, the current scores have, you know, Brazil and Guyana pretty close together, Mexico lagging. Uh, if you think five years out from now, um, we've got Guyana and Brazil kind of continuing to improve on the trajectory in line with what we've established with the continued bid-round opportunities under favorable terms and conditions. Mexico, however... Uh, does decline further behind those two countries. So five years out from now, yeah, um, Brazil and Guyana very competitive in our view, Mexico much less so as a result of, kind of the, the continuing um, nationalist political orientation of this, of this government in Mexico and, and what it means for investors
0: great and so I'd like to wrap up our conversation in um kind of a fun way so (laughs) we've been asking a lot of our our, um, guests on the podcast lately uh to tell us something about themselves so uh, let me ask if you could sit down for a beer with any one person whether that's a historical figure or current person uh who would you pick
1: oh I guess George Washington (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to know kind of uh, more about uh you know, what he was thinking back in the day. And, and uh, yeah, that's I, what comes to mind.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that would be an interesting conversation. He might be shocked at what the world looks like today, right?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, A lot of changes.
0: <laughs> oh, great. Well, Ford, thank you so much for uh, joining me today.
1: Thank you, Jessica. I appreciate it.
0: And, and I also want to thank our listeners today. Um, and I will talk to uh, all of you on the next podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com/energyblog. Also, if you haven't checked us out on social media, please search for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit IHSMarket.com energy. That's I-H-S-M-A-R-K-I-T dot forward slash energy.